Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Thanks to so many of you for checking out the podcast. If this is your first time and you like what you hear, please subscribe. Also, check out our event on March 25th. We're really excited about this. StockX CEO Scott Cutler is coming, Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, Posture's founder and investor Gary Tan, and Laura Deming, the powerhouse behind the Longevity Fund, among others. You can find more details on our website. And now it's time for the news. It's February 27th, and the stock market is tanking. Don't check your 401k, people. (laughs) The coronavirus is not good for business. The market was down up to 3.5% today, and we are officially in a correction. Yes, which is uh, pretty bad, but it could be worse, apparently. I'd seen a CNBC story earlier today that said there's sort of a certain band. I think if you're in the 10% decline, it could take like four months on average to recover to prior levels. If you get closer to 20%, they said it takes a much longer time. I think what's most disturbing about this is just how little information we have. We know so little right now about the transmission rates and how one can catch this thing and how lethal it is. And it's creating all sorts of doubt. I mean, I know that it's going to affect our behavior about where we go, what kind of trips we're planning. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that it's going to have a huge impact on demand for other things. Sure. I think it's very hard to reconcile what we're in for. We had dinner on Sunday night with some friends who uh, were traveling recently in Taiwan and, and came back and sort of warned us that Americans have no idea what they're in for. And then the market tanked. I feel like we were kind of heading for some sort of correction anyway. But of course, now I think there's no telling really how extreme this is going to be, in, including because of all the, the unknowns. But it's certainly interesting to see these major companies, Microsoft, Facebook, canceling events, canceling participation in events. Alex, you probably saw that Facebook just today canceled its F8 developers conference, which is like the biggest production of the year for the company. Yeah. And it was really alarming also to hear about the recent cases that have come out where the connection to other people with the virus can't be traced. Mm -hmm. And you can see that that kind of fear is spreading throughout the tech community. Definitely. You know, the venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz had gotten a little bit of grief in recent weeks because some of the partners were tweeting about this and the firm had put a sign up in its window. I'm not sure if in its Silicon Valley or San Francisco office saying, please, uh, no handshakes. Now, of course, it seems smart to have done that in retrospect. Also, I know they've taken things a little bit further I visited the firm this week to interview general partner Connie Chan and was asked before I came whether I traveled internationally for the in the last two weeks because you know had that been the case I think they would have preferred that we just do a call which again I don't I don't blame the the firm but the broader startup community is going to be impacted by this, I think, in a very negative way, because Alex, it already seemed like things were kind of on the skids as it, as it was. Yeah, there were some noted flops in the tech market. 2019 was very difficult. And in recent months, there have been layoffs at startups. So it can't be good news for companies that are trying to build their businesses. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even know where to date the start of the problems. But of course, you know, Uber and Lyft had sort of disappointing uh, offerings. Things seem to kind of like chug along nonetheless, but 
by January of this year, we were starting to see layoff after layoff. We're starting to see shutdowns. My um, former colleague from Thomson Reuters, now with the New York Times, Erin Griffith, just wrote a really great piece that captures uh, what's happening here. She noted that more than 30 startups have slashed more than 8,000 jobs, for example, over the last four months. What I think is really interesting, though, is the money that's still on the sidelines. And I wonder if people are going to sit on it or deploy it. According to PitchBook, there's like a hundred billion dollars that's out there. I talked to somebody this week from Y Combinator who was pointing out to me that sovereign wealth funds have trillions of dollars and they've been investing directly in startups. So he actually thought that $100 billion was low. Well, I guess I'm the eternal pessimist because I, I see how much money has gone into startups over the last decade something like a trillion dollars. And when you see what's going on now with the coronavirus and all the uncertainty that's created, and you also see the public companies that have stumbled, it does make one think that perhaps some of the sovereign wealth fund money might find other places to go. I wonder what it must be like for a VC firm that's trying to raise money in this kind of environment. It's a great point. I mean, I think nobody, of course, could have predicted this virus, but I think a lot of VCs were aggressively fundraising last fall just because the window has been open for so long. You know, invariably it swings shut again. And I think people thought 2020 could well be the year, if not for the virus, obviously, because it's an election season. This is like 12 or 13 years into a bull run. So, I mean, to their credit, a lot of VCs sort of saw some writing on the wall and closed their funds already. One fund that didn't put on the brakes was SoftBank. And Connie, I don't know if you saw this story about Rajav Misra, but wow. Yeah, that was pretty screwed up. I'm guessing that probably some listeners have seen this, but if not, we cannot recommend enough that you check out the story that the Wall Street Journal published yesterday about Misra. So he's this former banker who has been kind of uh, the right-hand man for some years of the CEO of SoftBank, Masayoshi Son. But this whole article is about how he basically tried to hobble these two other executives who he viewed as obstacles to more power and influence within SoftBank. And some of the accusations are, you know, you can't make this stuff up. It's so crazy. Yeah, the journal termed it a dark arts campaign of personal sabotage. Apparently, Misra targeted Nikesh Arora, who was once the heir apparent to Sun as chief executive, and a guy named Alak Sama, who was Aurora's deputy. And Misra hired a man named Benedetti, an Italian businessman, to plant stories about these executives. And they also engineered a honey trap in which they tried to lure Aurora into compromising positions. Uh, yes, uh, literally and figuratively, by trying to get him to go to a hotel room, apparently, with some women, where then he was, I guess, ostensibly going to be photographed by hidden cameras. It's so bananas. He also allegedly had this uh, businessman send shareholder letters to SoftBank, to, to asking them to investigate the men's business dealings. He, he sent or oversaw journalists being sent screenshots of their private banking accounts. If it's not true, it's very, uh, somebody's got a great imagination. But I, I felt that the SoftBank didn't push back as hard as it might have. The wording of St SoftBank's statement was pretty interesting. SoftBank said, for several years, we have investigated a campaign of falsehoods against SoftBank Group and certain former employees in an attempt to identify those behind it. SoftBank will be reviewing the inferences made by the Wall Street Journal. SoftBank didn't come out and say, this is bunk or this is not true. Right. 
They and were, I don't think the Wall Street Journal would publish something that would get them sued by SoftBank. So we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, my question is, didn't these guys have enough to do investing <laughs> billions of dollars into startups and they're running around planting stories? And, and also, how were they able to conceal all of this for so long? I, well, I don't know, but it sure sounds like the Italian businessman wanted to be paid more than he was. Uh, so, I mean, I think we have to suspect that some of this information that the journal got his hands on came from his camp. Well, lest you believe that this podcast only deals in stories <laughs> SoftBank, stay tuned for Connie's interview with Connie Chan. We had such a fun sit down this week. Unfortunately, I'm an idiot and I took all of our podcasting equipment with me. I set it up. I explained how I'd learned so much about podcasting in the last few weeks. And we conducted the interview and only after it was done did I realize that of all the buttons I'd pushed and squeezed, I'd forgotten to hit record. So thankfully, there is a copy of the interview, which I think is interesting and hope you will as well, but the quality could be better. Sorry. Thanks to this week's sponsor, Affinity. Want to learn why top VCs and business leaders leverage Affinity? Using patent-pending technology, Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision-makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. to be sitting here today with Connie Chan, General Partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Thank Connie, you. Thank you so much for making time. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> it's a pleasure. So, Connie is a consumer specialist. Is that fair to describe <laughs> I, I love consumer tech. That's correct. Great. So, I know that you've written some literature a few months ago that I thought was so, super interesting. You kind of drilled into four things that you're really tracking. Yeah. Um, but you also have a new deal that I know nothing about as I talked to you about it. Uh, we were talking, guys, before we started the podcast about the coronavirus and the fact that I think, right. you know, Americans are just now waking I mean, to the reality that it's going to be a bit, lot bigger uh, deal than we kind of thought. Yeah, and last longer probably than we thought. Well, so uh, that's why I want to talk to you. How long are you thinking it's going to last? And what are you sort of doing as a firm, I guess, to sort of prepare well, I, I think um, a lot of experts will have differing opinions, but one thought that people used to have about a month or so ago was mm -hmm. that with the warmer weather, a lot of this would go away, just like you would think that flu season typically ends around this time of year. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen in cases where there's pretty warm climate that cases still continue to grow. Right. And so I think now there's just a lot of uncertainty where people don't know where the situation is going to end. It's really surprising, though. You know, I just talked to a colleague from TechCrunch who was saying she was in JFK yesterday and nobody's mm -hmm. wearing masks. So I yeah. still feel like, despite the headlines, people are not getting the message. But, so, but I, I will say, like, you do see conferences getting canceled already. Sure. Worldwide and also in the U.S., mm -hmm. right? So I do think people are limiting travel. Um, to some extent. Sure, sure. I was actually surprised on my way over here to the, your offices. I walked past the RSA conference and it's packed. I was kind of surprised. I know a lot of people have actually pulled out, including TechCrunch's parent company, Verizon. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be more of that. But I, I'm just sort of interested from the VC perspective, how it could possibly impact 
you know, the industry. I mean, there's so much money that's flowing from all parts of the world into the U.S. Sure. Uh, presumably that's going to slow down. There's I mean, it was, it's interesting. I was just talking to a friend of mine who is an investor in Asia, mm -hmm. in China, and she said some industries are going to suffer significantly. Restaurants, for example, are, are hurting mm -hmm. businesses, right? Any store that relies on foot traffic, bookstores, so forth. But yet you see a lot of companies also doing really well in this time. You'll see grocery delivery as, as something that's like in high demand, right? right? Insurance mm -hmm. actually is in very high demand. People are spending more time at home. So whether it's games or TikTok Streaming, or sure. whatever they're doing at home is, is doing well. Lots of my counterparts in China who are doing investing are taking all their pitches with video conference. Sure. And they're still doing work, but they're all just working from home. Right, right. So I, I do think it's definitely going to impact the global economy in many ways. Some industries will be hit much harder than others. Where do you think we'll see it maybe first here? I mean, travel, I think, mm -hmm. is a big mm -hmm. obvious mm -hmm. one, right? Like I said, people might not be wearing masks in the airport, but I think people are thinking twice whether or not they want to go on vacation sure. to certain parts of the world. Right. Right. And so you have an investment that relates to coronavirus. Correct, correct. Great. Yes. Uh, well, it's, it's very relevant to coronavirus and also all the events that are getting canceled. Okay. Which is, I've always thought that the world needed a better way for people to find like-minded folks online and connect with them in a real genuine way. And this is outside of like the traditional social networks. And so I met these two founders who are former Facebookers who also had this vision of creating a digital version of conferences where it goes beyond just the speakers streaming to a one-to-many audience, but you could also sell tickets and variety of tickets, right? You can have the base ticket, you can have an upsell VIP ticket where you get to talk to the speaker oh. or maybe jointly stream to everyone, or maybe you can buy another ticket that gets you a signed book or whatever it mm -hmm. is, right? But really interestingly, how do you recreate the social networking aspect of networks and, and conferences, right? Because a big reason why we go to conferences is for the happy hour, is to get to talk to that speaker afterwards right. and connect with all the attendees. And so their expertise coming from Facebook has really been, how do you recreate that kind of social environment where you can interact with the speaker and also interact with attendees? So the company's called Run the World and they'll be launching this week. They've already run a number of conferences, and their conferences have had attendees from 30-plus countries. Great. And as an example, like they're hosting uh, a developer meetup basically this week for Wuhan, which was, of course, hit by the virus, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they're gathering developers from all over the world who want to hack together whatever they can to help Wuhan. And they've also hosted events in the past for nonprofits. Like a wildlife foundation was able to raise over $20,000 selling tickets where they basically just had to live stream the elephant in the wild. And then all these people, because they got to experience that moment together, were willing to pay that ticket to donate money. Right? And they've talked to folks who are thinking of using it for political fundraisers or influencers who are thinking of using it for book signing and actually also conferences. Right? Like any conference that had to get canceled because people don't want to be in the same physical space right. can now try and recreate that experience online where you can basically have a bunch of sessions, different speakers, you can charge for tickets. Speakers don't have to fly in. They can basically stream in from anywhere around the world. But there's also, most importantly, lots of interaction. If the speaker is speaking and saying something confusing, the attendees can click on a little emoji mm -hmm. and basically let the speaker know, hey, your audience is confused. Okay. Right? Or they could clap, 
or they can basically ask questions. They could leave comments, whatever it is. And then the attendees can also engage with each other. But you know that awkward moment when you're at a conference and you're not sure who to talk to, mm -hmm. and you're like, you're not sure if this is a good usage of time. You don't know how to bring it, like, uh, you don't know how to break the ice. You don't know what to say. Yeah. In this online environment, you get to see their profile. You get to watch a short video snippet. You get to see what they're looking for, who they want to meet at the conference, before you even engage in that conversation. That's fascinating. But it's not. It's sort of asynchronous. So you can do that. You're networking online, and then you're yeah. watching the conference as you would. But the synchronous part is you can have these conversations and comments while the speaker is talking. In addition to, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So run the world. Now, uh, I mean, obviously, like, has there ever been a more timely start? I know. Did they, <laughs> did they just react quickly uh, to what's happening in the world now, or have they been working on this for some time? They've been working on this for some time. So we made this investment last year. But, of course, with the virus, it's really accelerated a lot of things, where a lot of conference organizers have quite frankly had to cancel their conferences, right? Sure. Or people who are planning to host a conference in the spring are now saying, hey, maybe I can do like an online alternative right. still. And the beautiful thing is people don't realize like a conference, most of the costs going to the venue and the food and beverage mm -hmm. or like speaker travel costs. Mm -hmm. And in this scenario, because you're cutting all that out, you can actually pay your speakers even more, right? You can charge your attendees a lot less and you can still deliver that same dynamic. And what's beautiful is and some of the previous conferences they've run, they find that the attendees will, will watch the conference from home while they're taking care of their kids, while they're cooking, while they're driving mm -hmm. even. So it allows like a podcast. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It allows a lot more participants to join. That's fantastic. Well, I hope to God we don't need one for more events coming up. But um, I, I mean, that's terrific. It's great to have that alternative, and I can, you yeah. Know, I, mean, I can, I shouldn't say sort of. I can certainly see participating in one in the future, watching something like that. Yeah, that's terrific. And how much is it raised? Uh, it's a seed round. Okay. So they've raised a couple million dollars. Great. From Andreessen Horowitz alone? Largely from us. Okay. And individual investors? Yes. Okay. Great. So let's talk about also. I just wanted your thoughts on, you know, last week, Business of Fashion had written uh, the news about uh, Tyler Haney, the CEO of Outdoor Voices, leaving the company. And, you know, this is just a very popular D2C brand, uh, emerged a few years ago, Athleisure Wear. There are so many brands that I think were very well received and continue to be thought of highly, but that also get crowded out by, you know, newer brands. And right. so as somebody who studies the market. I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts about this company in particular, which one yeah. interesting sort of wrinkle is that it opened 11 stores. I don't know if that impacted the bottom line and, and has caused growth to slow financially, but just how you compete in today's, you know, 2020 as a, as a brand yeah. that's maybe been around a while, but um, I mean, I think for all D2C, marketing and branding is, is absolutely key to stand out, right, amongst the competition. And I think the ones that do well are ones that also capitalize on a sentiment, a general sentiment that's changing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you talk to a lot of millennials, younger millennials or Gen Z, the idea of inclusiveness is very important mm -hmm. to them. Embracing people of all different body sizes, all different types of genders and so forth. And so companies that are changing their messaging for that kind of idea of inclusiveness mm -hmm. are taking a very different stance versus the existing companies, right? Like you, you saw last week, they valued Victoria's Secret at $1.1 billion. Right. And I think part of that is you're seeing a rejection from younger audiences of that one single standard of beauty. 
And so D2C categories that I think are, have, have great positioning are ones that are capitalizing on changing sentiment, where mm -hmm. an existing brand was really built on one definition of what this brand should look like mm -hmm. or what this category should look like and what aspiration means. And now these new brands are taking on a completely different messaging. Is it hard, though, to sort of continue to be heard when the platforms, for example, where you're reaching this broader audience yeah. of your broader demographic is so saturated with other brands? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is given that there's so many new D2C brands mm -hmm. out there, CAC, your customer acquisition cost is basically going up for mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. brands, mm -hmm. right, in most categories. I don't see that slowing down. And I do think that is something that all investors are thinking about when they make these investments. They're very cognizant of the view that your CAC today is likely to go up next year and the year after that. So you really have to find these categories that have really good margins to work with mm -hmm. that can sustain that rise in customer acquisition costs. And so I guess as, a, as an investor, are you interested in completely brand new items that are maybe untested, like nothing that jumps to mind, maybe like birdies, like slippers for outdoors, which, you know, is not something that you'd heard of maybe, yeah. you know, before, yeah. or just a very good product that's you know that people want, but this is a better version of it. Yeah. We as a firm, we tend to not invest in many of these D2C companies. Mm -hmm. we, we much more gravitate towards software-driven, technology-driven mm -hmm. companies. I will say, if I were to pick a D2C space, I would be picking a space that I felt the market was growing, sure. where consumption of a particular type of product was growing across the board. And some of that might be generational, some of them might just be societal change. Mm -hmm. But I would be looking for categories where it wasn't just that you're bringing in a new alternative, but just consumption of this type of product is growing across the board. Mm -hmm. So for example, I think about um, Perfect Diary, which is a Chinese makeup brand that has really taken off and is now worth several billion dollars in China. A large part of that was because makeup consumption has risen dramatically in the last couple of years in China, okay. where a lot of the younger teenagers readily buy makeup now. And they also have another trend on top of that, which is they're willing to buy domestic brands as opposed to the European brands that we've all grown up on. Okay. And so there I feel like you have a growing market, you have also this changing sentiment of what that brand stands for, or mm -hmm. where it had to originate from, um, that allows a company to, to grow very quickly. So I think for D2C, it's less specific about almost what the product is, but what the market they're going after is, right, and right. what kind of margins you also have to play with from a marketing standpoint. Got it. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard of Perfect Beauty. Perfect diary, yeah. A perfect diary. <laughs> um, okay, so why don't we also talk about some of the other trends that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, great. Um, one trend that I thought was interesting, and I'm certainly seeing more and more of, is the sort of super app. Yeah. Why don't you explain to listeners what the super app theory yeah. is? Yeah. So, so the super app theory is basically you can take a product that used to be only used for a single purpose. And you can add on other things that might be ancillary or might actually seem completely unrelated, but are still relevant for that particular user. From a business definition, oftentimes it's using either a long-term engagement or a high-frequency use app to lead gen for these lower frequency but very high margin products. But from a consumer standpoint, it's really what else would I need from the internet or from another service provider that this app can also provide me in the same place right. so I don't have to go download another app. It's really just decreasing the friction of needing to download another app, create another profile, enter my credit card one more time, right. and just do it all in one place instead. Sure. 
And so Uber, for example, is a yes. good example of this. I mean, it's got, it brings you food, it takes you places. It always sort of, imag I think Travis, uh, the original CEO, always sort of imagined it being like a logistics company that did all of these things for you. Right, right. And, and the idea that you can order food and hail a, a car from one app, mm -hmm. I think, is a perfect example of a super app, right? Like, you're, you tend to not need both things at the same time. Sure. But it's great to not have to download two apps and just do everything in one place. One thing that I've seen everyone do, and I don't know if this sort of falls in the same category, is become sort of like a micro lender. I mean, everybody has yeah. some sort of payment layer now, which I think is interesting and smart, obviously, if you can take a little cut of your customers' transactions. Why not do it? I'm wondering how much, when you sort of look out maybe 18, 24, 36 months, mm -hmm. do you see people using maybe a much smaller set of apps that do everything or? I think it's possible. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's possible, but a lot of that will be, will come down to the execution of these existing companies and how well they integrate those kinds of services. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think that kind of world is possible. I look at China and how you can basically live your entire day in WeChat. You can function in China without using a single other application because that one application can connect you to everything, just like a mobile browser can connect you to everything, right? And that world is technically possible. Mm. It really is just how do you execute on it and how will society adopt it in other countries. Who in the U.S. do you think is sort of closest to WeChat or would have the best sort of chance to become sort of the WeChat of the U.S.? WeChat started as a communication platform, mm. so naturally you would think communication is a great place. Mm. But the other big ingredient of a super app is the payments layer or mm. some kind of connection to either your credit card credentials or your bank account. So in that sense, anything else that powers transactions also has a really good shot of doing it. Right? Like if I'm using DoorDash to order food, why not also use it to order X, Y, and Z that also requires a credit card checkout right. or also requires some kind of logistical delivery. Right. If you look at Gojek and Grab in Southeast Asia, that's exactly what they've done. They started in transportation, but then they also do grocery, they do food, they do loans, they do fintech, sure. right? they do everything in one place. I'm still waiting for Amazon to become a bank. I'm sure that that's going to happen at some point as well. You know, another sort of trend that you talked about that I thought was interesting, it was a little bit harder for me to kind of wrap my mind around, was authenticity and context. Yeah. Which is, the way I've seen you explain it is ads that actually make you want to buy something because of the context. Right, right. And, and this, I, you know, TikTok is the example I love going back to for this, where Oftentimes I'll, I'll scroll through TikToks and it's, it's an ad promoting something, but it's still so entertaining. I think of it as content. I, I might be kind of weird though, like I grew up enjoying the as seen on TV infomercials. <laughs> and like even though I'd seen it, I would still watch it over again. But I do think you're going to see you know, more of these TikTok-like examples where the ad doesn't have to be overly produced. And actually the ads that look genuine, the ads that are funny, the ads that are quirky, you don't mind watching, mm -hmm. even though it's actually selling you something. Right. And Authenticity and Context also talks about how TikTok and these video platforms can be new ways to showcase a product story. Like as you talk about D2C brands, for example, right? Very popular sellers on the China versions of TikTok are, are fruit farmers or even fishermen. And they will live stream themselves in the, the fruit orchard picking the orange. They will cut the orange and they will squeeze it and you will be so thirsty. You'll be like, okay, I have to order a crate of oranges, okay. right? Or you'll see the fisherman who is literally diving for the lobster that you can order and it gets shipped to your house as well. 
Or you'll see like a, a craftsman creating a creating an umbrella or whatever craft they're doing, and you'll see all the hours and the paint that they have to do, and you'll realize That's like, right. oh, this is handmade, mm -hmm. right? Like you think of all the products sold on Etsy, right? Where the main reason why you pay that price is you want to support these creators who are largely doing these things by hand, mm -hmm. right? And how else can they use video or media to tell their story in a way that makes everyone feel like, oh, I'm supporting something different? Sure. Uh, as an investor, do you have a related bet uh, on a media company that's helping facilitate these? Not in this exact space, mm -hmm. but I do think a great opportunity, I mean, for people who do invest in GDC, for example, like I would ask, what is your TikTok strategy? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, how are you finding new ways to go viral? Especially in this day, again, when customer acquisition costs are, are only going one direction, which is up. Right. Right. And so if you are a brand and you just have to buy ads, like what else can you do to grow virally? And TikTok is one of those level playing fields where if you create a really funny video, it can go viral without you having to pay the advertising fee. Great. A third trend I wanted to talk about, and I think this is really interesting, and you, you I first seen you talk about this a couple of months ago, and I don't know if I mean, it feels like the sentiment around this has only gotten more extreme, is technology showing up more in our physical world. And right. uh, you talked a lot about facial recognition, which yeah. people have such a conflicted relationship with. Yeah. Because obviously, it makes things a lot easier. You open your phone with it. You can sort of, you know, get scanned into something easily that you, you know, uh, where you feel comfortable. But obviously, there are huge concerns, privacy, racial profiling. Right. So, uh, I The guess trick I hear is to cover your ears. Oh, really? The ears are actually it, it, a big like identifier. You're kidding. Yeah. That is Because everyone's ears are so different. Oh my gosh, so it'll throw off even the, the cover your of, ears. Like, measuring your yes, face? Yes, cover your ears. Fascinating. <laughs> That's a great tip. <laughs> I'm sure you've been following the conversation. What do you make of it? I mean, do you think it's... Uh, I mean, I think it's controversial mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and there's a lot of people that see the good of it, and there's a lot of people that see the bad of it. But I think what people don't realize is it's already being implemented in places in the United mm -hmm. States, right? There are some schools that are already using it to protect their campuses. There are some airports that are already using it to allow people to check in. And it's unclear where the where the sentiment will ultimately land, but we have seen so many cases where ultimately decreasing friction mm -hmm. and ease of use oftentimes trumps privacy concerns for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily have a prediction on where the American public will land on this, but it's already being implemented. As Again, as an investor, is that sort of tricky terrain for you? Because you probably see technologies that would... Yeah, and, and you know, it's like, what's interesting is like the technology is just not around the face. I mean, there are parking garages, for example, where they can scan your license plate. And then now you don't have to take that paper ticket. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to forget about like losing that ticket right. or paying separately. And then you can go in and out of a garage in 10 seconds mm -hmm. each way, right? Lots of things that are increasing efficiency, but just unclear how the public is going to take to that kind of change in privacy. Right. And, and you know, one of the categories I'm also really excited about is audio. And so I love that we're doing a podcast today. I'm super excited to do <laughs> this with you. Because podcasts, I just feel like, are only going to increase in terms of popularity. You're already seeing it in the numbers. And we talk about this concept, ear share is the new mind share, and mm -hmm. how powerful podcasts can really be. You're literally in their ears. You're in right. their minds, right? And from a consumer standpoint, I think it's driven by a lot of things. One, there's just really great content across the board now. I'd say like on par with a lot of audiobooks. Two, you just have a lot of better hardware, 
right? Like you have cars that are now enabled to play your podcast. You have speakers at home that are really easy to use. And a lot of people using AirPods just find podcast consumption a delightful way to consume content while they're multitasking. Right, right. right? I think for me, the game changer was definitely AirPods. When I no yep. longer had to hold my device or I didn't have to be near it, I don't, as long as I'm, you know, somewhere in my house, basically, I can listen to whatever I'm yeah. listening to yeah. know, continuously, which is great. Exactly. And, and like me, if I'm cooking or, or nursing or whatever it mm. is, being able to do something else, that found time is such a wonderful feeling. And so I started thinking about, okay, what are the companies doing things in an audio first way? Mm -hmm. Right? Like if you think about a bunch of really great companies that were created 10 years ago, they had a complete mobile first viewpoint in designing product. And that's where you got things like Lyft, that's where you got things like Instagram. They built things that were not doable on the PC, but were really leveraging things on mobile. And so I'm thinking, okay, is there an opportunity to find things that are building companies and products for an audio first experience where they're not just taking a book and reading it, mm -hmm. but they're actually creating content that's specific to the audio format, whether it's sound effects or them choosing what the storyline should be or how many voices should be on it or how succinct the topic should be presented. Right. You know, one of our investments is in a seed company called Knowable. And they're basically creating like the, the masterclass for audio. Oh, okay. There's a bunch of topics where you actually don't need to watch the person speaking, mm -hmm. but the content is actually fascinating. And the one thing I just dislike about podcasts today is, well, one, they're very hard to search, mm -hmm. right? A lot of the platforms don't allow you to search for individual episodes and individual content that's like stuck and hidden inside a particular episode. But two, also t oftentimes podcasts because you have a podcast that can run for weeks, months, years, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the most efficient way to share one topic in the most succinct front-to-cover manner, right? So this company is basically saying, okay, if you have these basic ideas, whether it's how to speak more confidently, how to buy a house, like how to start a podcast, how to X, Y, and Z, that is one where if you're interested in that topic, searching through podcasts today, it's kind of hard to piece together all that information. Mm -hmm. But can they, through a curated format, put together the best form, like the best content out there from mm -hmm. a slate of experts and deliver that in like a really delightful audio way? Knowable. Knowable, That's fascinating. yeah. So how do they make the content more searchable though? If, it, if there's a piece of content within a, a Yeah, so, so if you're interested in any one of these particular mm -hmm. topics, mm -hmm. you can basically kind of see the course syllabus, right? You can see all the topics that are going to cover if you're going to buy this course on how to buy a home okay. and all the different points of views. And so you already know what you're going to get when you buy the course. And it also has a bunch of like PDF attachments that come along with mm -hmm. it. And this is actually where it kind of ties back to super apps in a nice way, where they're taking a customer-centric point of view what does this user need outside of the audio that I'm selling them? So if I am buying the course How to Start a Company, mm. and if it's an internet company, I'm probably going to need AWS credits to launch this product. And so now when you buy this product, you're also going to get AWS credits for free, bundled in. And you think about like if I'm buying the How to Sleep Better course, mm -hmm. what else could be bundled into that? Mm -hmm. What else am I likely to buy if I'm struggling with sleep sure. and insomnia? And so this customer-centric view is really what Super Apps is all about. My initial product is delivering the audio piece, but hey, this person clearly has really strong intent and really has this one particular problem. What else can I make it easier for them to access? Right. Like, how can I better serve that customer? It sounds like a great idea. Can I ask, what is their background? What made you think that this team was... Yeah, team yeah, they're repeat well. entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, their last company was also 
a, a company that raised money, that scaled, that, that launched a good product. So I felt like they had really good product chops. They also had a very high bar for quality, which as you know, I mean, in this, in this world of podcasts where there are new podcasts coming up every day, unless you are an existing brand, you really have to produce high quality content. Mm -hmm. So I really love that part of their vision. And another part that I loved was they wanted to go after topics that had real return on investment. And I have seen myself so many times wanting to know like how to interior design a home, how to paint the wall, how to make my kids sleep. Like I, sure. I paid for like online sleep consultants in the <laughs> past, right? That don't, don't, don't always work. And there's a bunch of topics that I'm willing to pay real money for where I search YouTube actually and I don't always get rich enough, deep enough content and it's not always from an expert that I know has been curated. So this idea that there's a bunch of topics out there that people are willing to pay for that are true pain points, they need answers to, they don't necessarily have time to go read a book. Right. Right. How else can you help those people? And this is sort of masterclass approach wherein they are getting people who are top in their field to talk yes. about that very things. Okay. Yes, that's exactly. great. I wonder, has masterclass uh, called them? <laughs> So well, masterclass is very video centric, right? Right. But it um, sounds like they should they're, be thinking more about it. <laughs> Perhaps they can work together someday. Before we wrap this up, what are one of your favorite podcasts? And of course, you don't have to say Strictly VC <laughs> It is a great one. How I Built This, I really loved. There's a particular episode that talks about the origins of how Power Rangers was brought to the West, Western world, which is, I think to this day, like one of my favorite podcast episodes ever. To be honest, when I was getting ready to have my second kid, I actually listened to a bunch of mommy podcasts, which surfaced a bunch of new ideas around the whole delivery process, around the birthing process, around the nursing process, stuff that I did not know before, even though I've actually read a bunch of these mommy, uh, mommy prep books. But I think podcasts are just a great way to surface new content from experts that I wouldn't have sought out on my own. Absolutely. You know, one of my favorites, I don't think it's come back, is called Katerina Fake's uh, podcast, Should This Exist? I've heard of it. It's, I haven't it's listened kind to of it fascinating. Yet. I think she did it in partnership with NPR and maybe Quartz Magazine, but it just looks at all these technologies and sort of second order effects and sort of explores, you know, the good and bad and asks, yeah. uh, you know, sort of a slate of founders and academics to kind of look at every angle of a new technology. And it's really, yeah. really uh, fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, Connie, thank you so much. It's thank been you. such a pleasure hanging out with you. Thank you. That's it. Another edition of Strictly VC Download in the books. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. And next week, we promise we will use our recording equipment when we talk to somebody. Thanks.